All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard, it's just a love ride. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, and my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Roger Wiegand, who publishes Trader Tracks, and Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? We do have special introductory offers for each of those newsletters separately. You can call my assistant, Claudio Bossi, in New York at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426, or go to my website at miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com. Another place to go to catch everything that I do is J Taylor Media. That's J-A-Y-T-A-Y-L-O-R, media.com. Well, thanks to each of you for listening to this show and making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. And we want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. For the first hour of today's show, our sponsors are American Manganese, Atochia Resources, Lucky Strike Resources, Helio Resources, Metznor Resources, Merrick's Gold, Inc., uh, Brazil Resources, American Bonanza, Paramount Gold and Silver Corp., Millrock Resources, and Palangio Exploration. Well, this week I'm talking to you from Switzerland, Zurich, Switzerland, to be exact, because I have a very full schedule for today. I'm going to be very brief here in this first segment just to tell you what is coming your way today. In just a couple of minutes after our first commercial break, the energetic and very talented Kathy Fong, the president and CEO of Lucky Strike Resources, will be with me to talk about her very interesting half-billion-ton coal project in Mongolia and what her plans are there to build this minuscule market cap company into a billion-dollar company. Well, she's done it once before, and I'm betting that she may pull it off again. If so, uh, people who are fortunate enough to own this stock should do very well. Of course, there are no guarantees. Uh, This is an early-stage company, but it does certainly seem to have some promise. Well, after Kathy, we will spend most of today's show talking to Adrian Day. He's a money manager and author. Adrian has some very important insights into the global equity and commodity markets. He approaches the world largely through the lens of Austrian economics. So I think he has a lot on the ball, a lot of very important things to say, and some good insights as to how you can best protect yourself in a very tumultuous market environment. Finally, from my office here in Zurich, Switzerland, I will comment on recent market developments and perhaps give you a sense of how the Europeans are viewing the world at this time when Europe is very much in the center of attention in the global markets. 
Okay, let's not waste any time. We are going to our first commercial break right now. And then when we come back, Kathy Fong will join me. Don't go away. I'll be right back. American Bonanza Gold's Copperstone Project, located in Arizona, is on track for a fourth quarter 2011 mine and startup process with the goal of achieving full production by the end of the year 2011. American Bonanza is fully funded and permitted with no debit or hedge. The company has a clear strategy to create a highly profitable, mid-tier gold-producing company beginning in fourth quarter 2011. Join the current gold bull market. Be a part of a new gold producer in 2011. American Bonanza Gold Corp. Visit the website at American bonanza.com for more exciting information don't miss this great opportunity American Manganese Incorporated controls the largest deposit of manganese in the southwest United States, and their 43101 preliminary economic evaluation includes the potential to be the lowest cost producer of electrolytic manganese in the world. A National Instrument 43101 report of 14.9 billion pounds of indicated and 3.5 billion pounds inferred. Go to www.americanmanganeseinc.com. Attention gold stock investors, Brazil Resources Inc., trading as BRIZF on the OTCQX and as BRI on the TSX Venture, is exploring three gold projects in the Garupi Gold Belt in Brazil. Surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits, BRI features top Brazilian geologists, earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold directly in Brazil, led by recognized mining and financing executive Amir Adnani, co-founder and chairman. Look us up now at www.brazilresources.com. That's Brazil Resources. Or call us at 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. Africa is known for its world-class gold deposits. Both Namibia and Tanzania are mining-friendly countries, and Helio has been exploring for gold here for the last six years. Backed by an experienced board and committed institutional shareholders, Helio is drilling its SMP Gold Project in Tanzania to demonstrate the potential for a multi-million ounce resource. Helio is also in the process of outlining the resource potential at its DGP project in Namibia, which is situated next to Anglo Gold Ashanti's Navatsjab Gold Mine. For updates, check out helioresource.com. Lucky Strike Resources Limited conducts due diligence drilling on the claim with a historical resource of 1.5 billion tons of coal in Mongolia. The project is directly north of China, where the coal consumption tripled in the last 10 years to 3.2 billion tons in 2010. Lucky Strike's management team has a proven track record, having contributed significantly in the building of a multi-billion dollar company operating in China. Please visit our website at www.luckystrikeresources.com Come and get in on this investment opportunity at the ground floor. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a lovely ride. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. 
to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me for a second time Kathy Fong. She's a talented engineer and CEO of Lucky Strike Resources. Lucky Strike Resources trades on the Toronto Exchange under the symbol LKY. You can buy it in the United States under the symbol LKYSF. There are approximately 18.7 million shares outstanding. Recently, the stock's been traded traded or quoted at least at around 64 cents, uh, giving it a market cap, a really small market cap of $12 million. And I think that's important to note because this is a company that has um, some very, very big potential in my view. Uh, so I'm very happy again to welcome Kathy. Thank you so much for joining us at Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Absolutely, Jay. And that's how we see it for Lucky Strike is that we have a sizable coal deposit in Mongolia. And considering that we have about half a billion ton of coal and a market cap of $12 million, we feel that the investor has an opportunity to get in at the ground floor level. Well, that's true. And, you know, there are companies that have good assets. Uh, it all really boils down to management. And I might just uh, remind our listeners that you, Kathy uh, Fong, have been involved in the past with some big successes, the one I'm most familiar with is Silvercorp, <clears throat> excuse me, which I believe uh, under uh, when you were in the man on the management team there, that was a company that uh, went uh, had a market cap of around ten million dollars when you got started and went up as high as three billion dollars and I think it's it's down from that now, but nonetheless a real success story, a major project, and you as an engineer have been involved in other major world-class projects in the past as well. I think it's important for our listeners to have that uh, understanding uh, that, Kathy, you've been very successful in the past. So uh, I think you can have good assets, but you need good management as well. And I think, um, you know, certainly your past should provide some confidence for investors uh, going forward. Um, I actually went back and listened to our discussion in the first show that we had, and what I am so fascinated with is your big picture approach. You know, lots of engineers are really sort of focused on the small details, important details to be sure, but you seem to have an ability to take a view from 34,000 feet up as well as through the microscope and investigate what, what I find is really fascinating about your story is the, uh, is the focus on the various business possibilities that would return or optimize shareholder shareholder value, and I want to uh, ask you some more about that and have you talk about that to our listeners because I think that's really what makes Lucky Strike unique. You're not just a coal exploration company. In fact, I, I don't think of you now that I've learned to know something about you. don't think of you too much as a coal exploration, coal manufacturer, coal, coal mining company so much as a company that is looking to produce other products from that coal. And I want to get more specific and talk about that, but maybe for those of uh, for our listeners that haven't heard you before aren't that familiar with Mongolia, could you just briefly talk about the Mongolian political uh, system, its legal system, and, and, you know, is it a safe place to operate? Is the contract honored in Mongolia, I guess, is a question that, that I have on my mind, and I'm sure other people do as well. Well, Jay, I think I'm going to answer this uh, question on the political legal first, and then we're going to go back to the big picture and the various mm -hmm. products in sure. terms of what we can do with this coal. In terms of um, political, as it stands right now, Mongolia's number one industry is mining, and this is where their ta tax dollars are going to come from. And, in fact, we're looking at the potential of 
billion plus tax dollars per year. The forecast from Goldman Sachs is that Mongolia is going to grow at an average of 18% GDP for the next five years. The forecast for 2011 is Mongolia um, may finish at about 20% growth in GDP. So that tells volume as to where the country is going, how it's uh, progressing. And in that respect, I believe that it's a country that is going forward, just like what I saw in China in 2005. In regards to their legal system for mining law, they have taken the mining laws around the world and used the, the best of the, the various mining laws as the template for the Mongolian mining law. Now, the other aspect I want to point out is that um, I believe that in a project, it's very important beyond the political and the legal that you have a very solid relationship, a good relationship with your partners, and that Lucky Strike has, simply because at the end of the day, it's about people's relationship, mm -hmm. how you build a team, how you work with your partners, how you bring a project to fruition. The geology has been in the ground for millions of years, but it is people who can actually monitorize that value. And mm -hmm. because of that, I feel that, yes, you might have a political or legal regime, which is more conceptual, but on an actual realization of your project, you have to be able to have go beyond the, the, that kind of framework and to make sure that you have people in place, team in place, and that everyone has the same goal, which is the success of the project and to bring the project to fruition. So that's my take on the political, legal, and, and people involvement point of view. No, in terms no. of our – sorry, Jay, go I, I was just going to say that I think you're absolutely right on the people aspect and, and small companies uh, that are – uh, that are sensitive to the needs of the local people. It's a very, very important aspect. You, uh, you know, you can have the best legal system uh, in the world, but if you don't honor the people, and you destroy their environment or, or hurt them in some way or another, uh, it's not going to work out very well. So I, I really appreciate what you're saying. I'm sorry for interrupting. Go ahead. So now, in terms of respecting the environment and making the best of your resource, that I like to see that has been coupling with technology. In this last um, 20, 30 years, we've come far. In the last five years, we've come dramatically far in terms of coming up with new ways, technology, to make good use of our resource. And for that reason, I see our project much more than coal, mm -hmm. simply because this very, you could even say common coal, the thermal deposit that we have, thermal coal, half a billion ton of thermal coal deposit in terms of an NI43-101 compliant resource, have the certain essentials of life, as in we could take this common thermal coal and we can turn it into diesel, coal to liquid, which would help in terms of transporting goods and people. We can take this common coal and turn it into ammonia, urea, used for fertilizer to feed people. We could take this common coal and make high-value chemicals like the methanol and the hydrogen and the acidic, um, um, acidic acid. Mm -hmm. We could take this very common coal and we could combine it with iron ore to make what's called direct reduced iron, 98% pure iron. 
to reduce the transportation cost of pure iron traveling around the world. We could take this common coal and turn it into electricity. Mm-hmm. And we could take this common coal and turn it into natural gas, which is the cleanest burning fuel. You know, one of the things that I observe when I go to places like China is that I might be wrong, but I feel as if a third of the population have respiratory problems. Yeah. And if we can take this coal and turn it into synthetic natural gas, which is the, the most cleanest burning fuel, it would be very good for the environment, for Asia. So to me, I see this coal deposit, which is a growing resource, which is how Lucky Strike sees it, in terms of expanding our resource, goes beyond um, just a resource in the sense that it would produce multitude of useful products for society. And that's how I see it. This is an essential of life. Okay, so you're starting out here with about a half a billion tons of coal. You're still exploring and expecting to expand that even larger. Is that right? I believe that this is just the beginning of the growth of our deposit because a half billion ton of coal comes from less than 10% of the land package. The land package is 131 square kilometers. That's 10 kilometers to 13 kilometers. I do live in Vancouver, so this land package that we have in Mongolia is about the size of Vancouver. It's quite substantial in size. So I do believe that it'll be, um, it will take a number of drilling seasons to be able to cover the ground, to explore it, and to have a better understanding of the deposit size going from half a billion to upwards. So we don't know what it is at this point. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly a half a billion is a good place to start, I would think. Uh, you have expressed all of these various ideas of different products How much work and research have you done? I know that when we talked to you the last time, you had some ideas of what capital expenditures might be for the various products, what kind of uh, cash flows might be turned out from the various products. Uh, Could you go over those numbers again? And and that's one question. The second one is I, I believe you're planning or you're starting or will be starting a feasibility or at least a scoping study sometime soon. Uh, that would more probably definitively uh, uh, outline the economics of these various products. Is that right? Jay, absolutely. When we look at um, different products, the capital expenditure and the projected revenue, these are some of the order of magnitude um, that we're looking at. Now, we have to initiate the scoping study, which we hope to have completed in a 12-month period. Therefore, it's important to know that these are just research numbers based on other people's um, production and other people's technological work. Mm-hmm. So right at the, the most simplest form is to um, build wash plant and sure. have the coal upgraded to China and ship to China uh, as per se a end user and to do a wash plant and build the infrastructure for um, such an assembly our back of the envelope um, capital cost is about $150 million for a 5 million ton or 15,000 ton per day operation. And we would consider um, a thermal coal of this nature um, hugely discounted uh, once upgraded, perhaps about $50 a ton. 
Mm-hmm. So that would give um, quite a substantial revenue. We've also um, been looking at research that other people have done to understand the higher end product because we're more interested in the higher margin product. So I'm going to give you some examples. We're going to start with methanol. For a methanol plant, we're looking at about 225 to $275 million. The projected annual revenue for a plant of this nature could be around $130 million with an EBITDA annual earnings before interest, tax, dividend, and amortization, about $60 million. So that's one possible product. Another Kathy, possible- you said 60, 60, or 16? What was the number? Uh, six zeros. Six, six zero. Okay. Mm-hmm. Six zero. Um, sixty million. Sixty million dollars. Now that's one product, the methanol. Another possible product we're looking at is ammonia. To build ammonia plant for fertilizer, we're looking at about two hundred and fifty to three hundred million dollars, and with an annual projected revenue of three hundred and fifteen million and a projected EBITDA of $155 million. Now, these kinds of margins start to look um, more appealing for the investor, and it's more um, logical. Let's look at another product, which is ethylene glycol. We're looking at a capital expenditure of, in the order of magnitude, of $670 to $720 million. The expected annual revenue would be in the range of $440 million and an annual EBITDA of $305. And now we're talking about the kind of margin that we we want for the investors because these are very multi-generation, not just um, multi-decade production possibility because of the size of these deposits. Once we we look at it typically as three to five year um, payback. Once the capital expenditure um, is paid back, the rest of it would be a substantial gravy train. But one of my favorite projects is synthetic natural gas. Synthetic natural gas, which is a huge project, is a project of perhaps $2.3 billion. What that would result in is a projected annual revenue of $1.5 $75 billion and a projected annual EBITDA of $1.15 billion. Now, this project is very interesting because in the um, news, Ho Jintel, um China's um, president, went to um, Russia in June and he was trying to close a, a trillion dollar gas deal to take gas from Russia into China for the next 30 years, mm. and he wasn't able to close that deal, and the word has it is that China is going to work towards looking for resource from other um, countries, mm. and Mongolia being north of China is a logical source of gas of this nature. So we're looking at synthetic natural gas, a clean burning energy, environmentally friendly, and that it would um, help clean up the environment, like in China, Mm -hmm. to reduce respiratory problems. Mm -hmm. So I see this project as being one that harmonizes with me as a human being. What, What 
are the goods I can do for society to well, uh, give better comfort for, for the average human being. Well, it's certainly uh, looking at some of these numbers, Kathy, the kind of returns, and, uh, and again, we would caution our listeners to realize that these are sort of general numbers and you'll be drilling down in more detail with the scoping study and probably ultimately a feasibility studies for various projects. But as I look at it, not only, uh, I mean, ultimately the economics have to work. And, you know, as a person who just came back from Hong Kong and realized that uh, the air quality isn't really what you what you what human beings need. I, I can really appreciate the environmental aspects of of, of what you're talking about here. Uh, this is these are some really exciting stories, really exciting possibilities for your, for your company. Though, uh, as I look at a company though with a market cap, a very low market cap, these are big numbers. Uh, how do you how do you see going forward? How do you see financing these projects, assuming the economics and the studies work out? Uh, are there some major companies that might want to get involved with you uh, on on some of these projects? Well, for those who, large companies that are astute, this is a great timing to come in and work with Lucky Strike to take this project into a bankable feasibility um, status. The whole thing with the project development of this nature, considering that we're still in the resource growth um, stage, this is where typically if we were to look at some um, the return on the stock value, this is where the growth, the dramatic growth period is. Mm-hmm. While we're growing the resource, doing the scoping study, moving it into a pre-feasibility, a feasibility, and a bankable feasibility state. By the time a project of this nature reaches the bankable feasibility um, state, at that juncture, a project can be brought into a, a banking structure that could be a bond or it could be um, a bank loan, or it could couple with a substantial um, company that has the, um, uh, the financials to be able to carry a, a world-class, sizable project of this nature into production. So there are many avenues in terms of what we can do with this coal project, but the for me, the most important part is the fact that this is a very sizable thermal coal deposit in the making, and that this hard asset, regardless of technology and regardless of time, is a very useful commodity, a resource for humankind. Because a thousand years ago, mankind used coal, and it could very well be a thousand years from now, if we have any left that this coal would make very useful products for society. And that is what's invigorating, that the hard asset, the the essence of the hard asset has intrinsic value that will not go out of fashion over time. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. And, uh, of course, I think it's important for listeners to realize that, uh, again, I I can't emphasize it enough that you you have a a market cap of only $14 million with with a huge, you know, half a billion ton coal resource and and uh, lots of uh, possibilities here of course the main frustrating part about investing in early uh, stage companies like this is that sometimes you have to wait longer than you hope uh, to, uh, for your return but then on the other hand i've had it happen to me kathy all too often i've waited too long and then the train is pulled out of the station without me so uh, th- th- you know there's always that possibility as well but I, I think this is a hugely interesting story, and uh, one I think has great promise. 
When did you say you expect uh, some scoping studies to be done? We're working on it, and the thing is that we expect a scoping study to be completed in about 12 months from now. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, is there anything else you'd like to tell our listeners before we conclude our discussion today? Well, the way we see Lucky Strike, it has three fundamentals. The first fundamental is that to get in early and to get in at the baseline, and that's where we are because it is $12 million in market cap. That is a publicly traded company that's blue sky in 38 states. Number two, that the people behind this company are not just experienced, but have a proven track record. Number three, the project, the essence of this thermal coal deposit is very useful for society, and it's at the beginning of its resource growth in that we don't know how much bigger it's going to be beyond the half billion ton of thermal coal, but if we were to look at it, half a billion ton at five million ton per year, that's a hundred years of possible production, and that's pretty substantial. So it's because of these three fundamentals, we feel that Lucky Strike is a solid company in the making. Well, well definitely a hundred years is certainly a long period of time. Uh, we'll will no doubt uh, be operating long after I'm gone. Um, perhaps not you, Kathy, because you're a lot younger than me. But anyway, it is a very, very interesting story. I want to thank you very much uh, for sharing that with us again. Uh, and so I hope we'll be talking again sometime in the future. Certainly something I'm going to be keeping my eyes on uh, for a possible inclusion in my newsletter, J. Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. So I want to thank you very much, Kathy, once again. But folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back after the commercial break with Adrian Day, and I'm sure Adrian, Adrian's going to have some interesting things to talk about uh, with respect to energy and coal. We'll certainly ask him and, um, and run this uh, whole story, Kathy Fong's story, past Adrian and see what he has to say about it. So uh, don't go away. We'll be right back with Adrian Day. Merex Gold, with over 800 square kilometers of contiguous permits in West Mali, Africa. Merex and exploration partner IM Gold have spent $17 million on the advanced stage Surabaya Gold project in Mali. 40,000 meters of diamond and reverse circulation drilling currently underway to expand Merex's indicated resource and to determine the true size of the Surabaya Gold deposit. Exploration also continues on the huge gold anomaly at Zone Bambadinka, as well as the major gold system on the Babara and Kofia permits. American Bonanza Gold's Copperstone Project, located in Arizona, is on track for a fourth quarter 2011 mine and startup process with the goal of achieving full production by the end of the year 2011. American Bonanza is fully funded and permitted with no debit or hedge. The company has a clear strategy to create a highly profitable, mid-tier gold-producing company beginning in fourth quarter 2011. Join the current gold bull market. Be a part of a new gold producer in 2011. American Bonanza Gold Corp. Visit the website at American AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. Attention gold stock investors, Brazil Resources Inc., trading as BRIZF on the OTCQX and as BRI on the TSX Venture, is exploring three gold projects in the Garupi Gold Belt in Brazil. Surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits, BRI features top Brazilian geologists, earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold directly in Brazil, led by recognized mining and financing executive Amir Adnani, co-founder and chairman. Look us up now at www.brazilresources.com. That's Brazil Resources. 
www.thebigshowsradio.com or call us at 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. Lucky Strike Resources Limited conducts due diligence drilling on the claim with a historical resource of 1.5 billion tons of coal in Mongolia. The project is directly north of China, where the coal consumption tripled in the last 10 years to 3.2 billion tons in 2010. Lucky Strike's management team has a proven track record, having contributed significantly in the building of a multi-billion dollar company operating in China. Please visit our website at www.luckystrikeresources.com and get in on this investment opportunity at the ground floor. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Uh, I'm pleased to have with me for a second time Adrian Day. He is considered a pioneer in promoting the benefits of global investing in the United States. An honors graduate of the London School of Economics, Adrian is widely recognized for his global investment commentaries and published research. Adrian publishes Adrian Day's Global Analyst from his office in Annapolis, Maryland, where he also operates as a global money manager. He is the founder and president of Adrian Day Asset Management. It's a global money management firm that has been serving private investors and small institutions successfully since 1991. Adrian's affiliations, among others, include the International Tax Planning Association in London, the International Association for Financial Planning, and the Offshore Institute. Adrian has authored three books uh, on the subject of global investing, the most recent being Investing in Resources, How to Profit from the Outsized Potential and Avoid Risks. Welcome, Adrian, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, thank you very much. Really good to have you. Good to have you again. Uh, I know the last time we talked, there just wasn't enough time. Today, we we have um, two segments and upwards to an hour. Well, you take away some commercials and a little less than that, but... um, Adrian, you're known for your global investing, as we just noted, and you've been especially bullish on natural resources. And before we get into the case for natural resources and commodities, uh, which you make very well, I think, in your book, Investing in Resources, what is your read now of all of the chaos in the global markets these days? Uh, let's start first with the, with Europe. Well, that's a huge question, isn't it? Um, you, you know, I, I look at... Um, markets differently than I look at uh, economies. In other words, mm-hmm. one could be very negative on an economic outlook, but sometimes mm-hmm. the the markets, the stocks, may have discounted the problems. Mm-hmm. 
And that, to some extent, is what I'm seeing in Europe. I mean, I am, I am very negative on the European outlook. I, we may get a bit of a respite now, frankly. Uh, I, think, I think we're overdue for a little bit of a, 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 little bit of a respite. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, new prime minister in Greece, new prime minister in Italy. You know, maybe, maybe um, things will look a little optimistic for a week or two. But fundamentally, fundamentally, the problems haven't even been um, tackled. I mean, does anybody really think that Greece's debt problem is solved and we're not no. going to hear about that again in another six no. months or a year? No, no of course not. Um, and so, I'm, I mean, I'm very fundamentally bearish. One of the problems is, of course, that they just have altogether too much debt and too much government spending. Um, but debt is at the government level. It's not at the household level, typically. I mean, Greece is different from Germany. But if you look at uh, uh, Northern Europe in particular, uh, but even in some of the Southern European countries, the personal balance sheets, the household balance sheets, are really reasonably strong, certainly stronger mm-hmm. than they are in the United States. Right. But it's the it's government spending and the, and the obligations that are really, uh, uh, you know, really the fundamental problem. Mm-hmm. So, no, I'm negative. And I, I frankly don't think that the situation is going to be solved until Greece and others leave the euro. I yeah. mean, the whole euro, the whole euro is an inane construction. It, it just doesn't work the way it is, and it cannot work the way it is. A single currency with, with different countries having their own fiscal policies. I mean, it, it just plain doesn't work. Mm-hmm. It cannot work. And it was Milton Friedman, I believe, who said that the euro will last until it has its first crisis. Yeah. So, anyway. But, but now, that doesn't, mean, that doesn't mean that I'm not buying European stocks. Perhaps we'll come mm-hmm. to that later. But mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. So your prognosis for the survival of the euro, at least as it, as it stands now, uh, is not very good. No, absolutely not. And and you know what's been happening in Europe, in Europe with the euro has actually made some of the peripheral countries that stayed out of the euro even more antagonistic. Um, you know, countries like Finland, but countries like uh, Britain, for example, where there was a, I don't know, it, they, they didn't seem to get much publicity over here, but there was a major revolt uh, in the Tory party um, against their own government uh, on a, uh, holding a referendum for Britain to actually completely leave the European community altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, the government didn't want to hold a referendum on that, but uh, a significant part of the Tory party revolted and, and mm. voted for it. Mm. So, you know, in some ways what's happening is making other people a little more nervous, I think. Mm-hmm. So do you see a, a trend, uh, a possible trend evolving even globally that would cause countries to move back and, you know, to seek their sovereignty again, uh, or maybe not really wanting to, but having to do that. So Greece, potentially, I suppose, Portugal, I don't know about Ireland, but Spain and Italy, of course, are, are considered to be weak, weaker uh, participants in the euro. Could we see a, a total dissolution, uh, a dissolvement of the euro, do you think? Or do you think part of it, a, a, maybe a Franco-German um, uh, remainder, perhaps. Yeah, I would say more the latter, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go too far with that. And what, what what's interesting is that a majority of the Greek people still want to stay in the euro. Mm. Uh, they just don't like the terms. And of course, <laughs> the Eastern European countries are also wanting to join the euro. 
Um, you know, clearly when some of these countries join the euro, there are enormous <coughs> initial benefits in terms <laughs> of, um, you know, contributions from, from the center outward to the periphery. So, um, you know, these countries see that and they see a big benefit. Um, I, I would think it's almost more going to be uh, uh, what we'll call the center or the northern Europeans, Germany, Holland, and so on, just getting upset, uh, partic particularly Germany, just finally getting fed up with supporting um, uh, countries on the periphery that they regard as not working as hard as they do. Yeah. Well, I can certainly see what you're talking about, the initial benefits. My wife is Portuguese, and when Portugal joined the, uh, the European Union, there was a lot of money going into that country to build highways, uh, infrastructure, and so forth. A lot of jobs were created. Uh, for quite a while, the Portuguese people's standard of living uh, for a lot of people at least started to, to, uh, to grow. Of course, we couldn't uh, enjoy the same uh, – we, we, we couldn't enjoy great restaurants – uh, at the same low prices as we did earlier before they joined the union but uh but now the problem is of course um, is that the income isn't there uh, really to allow them to participate or the cost is starting to to hit them hard it seems to me no absolutely you're absolutely right i mean you saw the same thing with ireland when ireland joined now of course we should make clear that in order to receive those benefits they don't actually have to be part of the euro mm -hmm. uh, but certainly up until recently, up until this crisis hit, you know, Germany and France in particular and the other, you know, old-time members really didn't want countries joining the European community and not joining the euro mm -hmm. because they saw that very much as wanting the benefits without the pain. Sure. Um, but some countries, as you know, Denmark, for example, and Britain is an obvious example of countries that are in the EC but not in the euro. But, I, but but more recently, they really didn't want that. Mm -hmm. But perhaps we'll go back to the idea of countries joining the Euro European community but not joining the euro. Yeah. Well, we'll see. It certainly, uh, it certainly has caused a, a ruckus in the markets, no doubt about it. What happens if the euro ceases to exist? Uh, isn't this a bullish trend for the dollar, potentially, at least in the short run? Oh, I think in the near term, this is bullish for the dollar. Um, I mean, if the euro were to break up or, or split into two, fundamentally, I think that would be positive for the European countries because, mm -hmm. um, because as I say, it's unworkable the way it is. You know, uh, if, if Germany did not have to spend so much money supporting countries like Greece and Italy, it, it would certainly be positive for the remaining hard, hard euro. But in the meantime, yes, absolutely, this, this uncertainty is definitely a negative, is definitely a positive for the dollar. What's interesting to me, and I don't know if you feel the same way, but what's interesting to me is we've had two years of Greece in the headlines. I mean, astonishing. Yes, yes. And we've had, and, and to me, the worst part of it all for the markets, from the market's point of view, has not been the reality of Greek debt, which, after all, is fairly insignificant. For most banks outside of Greece, Mm -hmm. Greek debt is an insignificant part of, of mm -hmm. their assets. I mean, it sure. could all be written off 100%, and it wouldn't affect um, – I mean, there may be a bank somewhere, but, but it wouldn't affect the banking system. Mm -hmm. um, but, but what's astonishing to me but, – but what's worse, I think, is the way it's been handled and the continuing up and down, up and down. You know, we've got a plan for a plan, and then the plan for the plan mm -hmm. falls apart. Now we'll have a – 
you know, a, a committee meeting to study the next plan, and then that falls apart. And, you know, it's, it's just been a bit of a farce. But what's been astonishing to me, and I don't know if you think the same thing, is that throughout all of this, the euro has really held up it remarkably well. Yes. Remarkably well. I mean, let's go back to beginning of 2010, mm-hmm. and, you know, we saw the euro at $1.42, and it went all the way down to $1.20, then it went back up to $1.45, and now it's at $1.38. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm just astonished. Um, why is that? Uh, it strikes me that the reason the euro's held up so well is because, to the extent that international investors are concerned about the euro, they're also concerned about the dollar. And yeah, I would, yeah, I would. Yeah, I would. Would think that's true, Adrian. And and also, of course, I believe it is true that Europe, as a whole, is actually a bigger trading partner. <clears throat> excuse me, with China, than the U.S. is. And so, I'm wondering if there's not. You know, obviously, some interest on on China's part. They don't want to have all of their uh, all of their export earnings in the U.S. dollar, and they're looking to diversify to to an extent. Wouldn't that also no. be part of the answer? I think that that may well be part of the answer. Yeah. 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 Well, um, well, well, go ahead. No, I was just going to say one one of the rules of trading I've often found is that when a market doesn't decline when it quote should decline uh-huh. or when it doesn't go up when it should go up, mm-hmm. that often tells you something about the fundamental strength or weakness. You know, if 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 a if a stock you know is at ten dollars and comes out with great news and nothing happens or it goes to ten dollars and five cents. The odds are that everybody that's bought is or, that wants to buy is already bought, and the odds yeah. are that you know you're fully priced. Yeah, the discount and, and is... vice versa. So the fact that the euro hasn't <clears throat> declined perhaps means um, you know, but it may not decline that much, frankly. Yeah, the market's being forward-looking, uh, being able to perceive the future uh, collectively, I guess. Um, well, well, looking at the dollar, Adrian, uh, it looks to me. I mean, I'm just looking at the charts, and it looks to me that something in the area of on the index, something on the area of 71 to 72, sort of a, la- a line in the sand. So if the dollar were to fall below that sort of support level, do you, or maybe you have another number in mind, do you see a problem for the dollar where the dollar could become extremely weak? No, absolutely. I mean, the dollar has been, as, as we know, throughout 2010, it was, or second half of 2010 anyway, it was very weak. And it's just kind of bumped along. Um, uh, recently, and as, as we just mentioned, really hasn't rallied as much as you might have thought it would, given the situation in Europe and the problems in Japan. It really hasn't rallied that much. So, um, no, I, I think we're going to test that, you know, $73 level again. Um, and, uh, you know, if it breaks through that to the numbers you were talking about, I, I think we could see a much lower number, yeah. I mean, the play, to, to me, the dollar has fundamental problems. Not only is our, is our debt problem, our debt ratios in the United States are as bad as most of Europe. Um, and if, in fact, on a, on a, on a uh, uh, ab- total debt ratio basis, on a total debt ratio basis, only what? Only Italy, Greece, maybe Belgium. Mm-hmm. Oh, Japan, of course. Um, are worse in the United States. 
So Adrian, uh, let me just so you're t when you say total like total debt, not just government debt, but total. Oh, no, 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 no. Sorry, sorry. I'm talking about federal government debt. I'm sorry. Okay, federal government debt. Okay. F fed mm -hmm. Federal government debt. Mm -hmm. Um, and um, so 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 our debt problems are are bad. Our one of the problems that I find is that you know we're now paying in the United States around 10% of federal government revenues are going on servicing the debt. Now, 10% is high, but it's not that bad, and it's certainly been higher in the past in the United States. But to me, the point is, is 10% when interest rates at the short end are at 70-year lows. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. also at a point when the federal government has been issuing more short-term debt than long-term debt, and mm -hmm. rates are lower at the mm -hmm. short end. So right now, the federal government is paying across the board on all of its outstanding debt, including, you know, 30-year bonds issued 25 years ago. It's paying 2.2% on all of its debt. That's barely that, – that's, that's uh, a little over a third of the 20-year average. Yeah, that, so that's – rates – yeah, sorry? No, go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry. Well, I was going to say, um, you, you know, the numbers I've looked at suggest that if rates were to move back up even towards half, mm -hmm. halfway towards that 20-year average. And remember, 20 years is well after Volcker, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So even if it moved halfway towards the 20-year average, uh, you would have uh, uh, you would have the debt servicing uh, being 20% of government revenue. Mm. Now, 20% it starts to just spiral out of control sure. dramatically. That's sure. the reason I think rates have to stay low in the United States Institute, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. uh, because well, we can't afford them to move up. Well, to what extent uh, is that controllable, though? Well, that's a good point. The, the Fed, of course, can control <coughs> the short end. Mm -hmm. It can pump money into the system. <coughs> Mm -hmm. uh, by pumping money into the system, you you keep rates uh, lower than they otherwise would be, but but at some point the market. See, I think you've got a you've got a, di a dilemma going on here because at some point the market international investors are going to want a better return on their on their money to put the money into the United States. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So well, we have we, but but we have Operation Twist now on the Fed. Goes out and buys the long end of the yield curve, right? So well, no, that's that's absolutely right. And you know, I mean, what's happening, and and I think you agree with this, but I mean, what's happening is we built this whole edifice of fiat money that's backed mm -hmm. by nothing, and it works as long as it works. <laughs> but once you break the confidence, you don't get that confidence back. And I think what's happened now is somebody <laughs> shouted, "Hey, the emperor has no clothes." Yeah. And but, now we but, in the Austrian movement have been talking about this, you know, ever since Nixon broke the, uh, you know, closed the gold window and, oh. and before. But, but it's suddenly become obvious to everybody. And you can't put, the, I'm mixing metaphors here, you can't put the chini back in the bottle. You know, the confidence has been broken. Well, the, the emperor may not have any clothes, but the emperor, the Anglo-American empire, uh, emperor has a fantastic military machine. Uh, it's a military might that is unparalleled anywhere else in the world. Uh, and to what extent can that military, does that military actually back the U.S. dollar? Uh, you know, and, and then the other question is, how long can the U.S. military survive uh, if we can't fund it? And who's going to fund it uh, if the Chinese decide they don't necessarily want to buy our treasuries anymore? 
Well, no, abs- abs- absolutely. I mean, the, the military, I think, is a negative in the sense that it costs an awful lot of money to maintain. So, I mean, at, at the moment, our, our problem, we've got an we've internal debt problem. Um, and then, of course, there's the external problem of, of the big buyers of our debt, which, other than the Federal Reserve, which is the largest buyer of U.S. debt, as we'll return to that point in a second, but yeah. other than the U.S., the biggest buyers of U.S. debt are all, you know, foreign central banks. And they're all central banks, of, well, not all, the biggest ones are, are newly developed countries like China, Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Saudi Arabia. They are the biggest holders of U.S. debt, Russia, biggest holders of U.S. debt. Um, these countries are getting very, very nervous of having so much of their reserves in a single asset and a single asset that looks increasingly risky. So if you look at the last 10 years, for example, the proportion of emerging market central bank reserves that are held in the dollar has gone from 73% 10 years ago to 55% today. Now, two things about that. One is to have over half your reserves in a single asset is still is still fairly strong concentration. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a very dramatic decline in the proportion of reserves held in the dollar. Uh, and, and my sense is that that's only going to continue to decline. Yeah. Well, that, you raise another point that just comes to mind now, Adrian, uh, is that some of these countries that you mentioned, I think China in, in particular, may be in competition with us for natural resources around the world. And so why would they necessarily want to finance the U.S. Treasury and uh, the U.S. military uh, to compete geopolitically around the globe for resources? So it might be a, a time, I would think, that the Chinese might say, well, you know, I'm not sure that we want to keep buying treasuries in part because you're building your military and going around and beating the hell out of countries and basically changing regimes uh, in a way that's favorable to you and not so favorable to us. Any thoughts on that idea? <coughs> oh, excuse me. No, I agree with you completely. Um, I mean, I think at the moment what we're seeing is countries, countries, several countries, including China, have been slowly reducing the proportion of their assets that they put in the dollar. But there hasn't been any wholesale selling of those assets, of dollar assets at the moment just been a shift so you put less into the dollar and now this year china has been selling but marginally and you know it it's it's it uh, even at the beginning of the year they were still put net buyers of, of us but it's been a shift in the proportion that goes into the dollar mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but as time goes on certainly if there's some kind of conflict over taiwan or you know some kind of conflict in africa between the Chinese and, and American interests, I think you could easily see a more a more dramatic sale of U.S. assets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and, and that would hurt the dollar significantly because at the moment it's been fairly kind of orderly. Yeah, you could see a waterfall in the dollar, which I think could raise the prospects of inflation, and that's something I'd like to to, to talk to you about a little bit later. But you know, especially since the Lehman Brothers failure, the global markets have been extremely volatile. And there's been they've been typified by the risk on, risk trade on, risk trade off. When the risk trade is on, commodities and stock prices rise. When it's off, people sell stocks and commodities and buy 
U.S. Treasuries and the dollar shows strength. So we're sort of a perverse strength in the dollar. When things get really bad and the markets melt down, the dollar gets stronger. I, I like, look at it as sort of a short covering of, uh, of, the, uh, of the dollar, essentially, because, you know, when you, make, when you borrow money, you're, you're, you're shorting the currency, essentially. You're borrowing it and then selling it in exchange for stuff. And, and so what I would like to know, do you have any sense when, when this nonsense might be over? I mean, when we might get back to fundamentals driving currencies relative currency values uh, instead of this risk trade on, risk trade off. And a lot of times it seems to have, you know, not much more than, than um, spin from politicians. And, you know, what we've just seen going on, and you were hinting at it a little earlier, uh, what we've just seen going on in Europe you know, with, uh, well, maybe we'll be okay for a week or two now that the confidence has been restored. I mean, when is this nonsense going to start? When is the world going to get back to fundamentals driving currency values? No, well, driving currency values, but also driving uh, ass other assets like stocks and so on. No, you're absolutely right. I'll try to answer your question, but, I mean, let me just you're, – you're absolutely right. I don't know that I've ever seen a period since I've been doing this where markets have responded in such dramatic ways from day to day just based on some little bit of news. You know, we're going to hold a meeting, market yep. goes up. Greece is going to have a referendum, market goes down. Yeah. And, you know, my, my, my question, my rhetorical question is, doesn't anybody have a fundamental view on things for the next sort of, for the next few weeks or months? Yeah. Or is it just a matter of day-to-day, -day, whatever some politician says? Yeah. Um, okay. it's, it's really quite astonishing. Now, when is this going to change? Huh, that's a little more, more difficult of a question, frankly. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think at some point markets just get exhausted, mm -hmm. um, if, if I may put it that way. I mean, this is, this is tough, tough going this year, uh, trying to sort of eke out any kind of return um, with markets with markets the way they are. Now, you know, I, I, I think for investors, we can use this volatility to our advantage, you know, and, and try to pick up really good quality companies when they're particularly cheap. You just have to be very, very patient, and you have to be quick when it happens because, you know, they can turn around on a dime. Mm -hmm. um, but I think as an investor, you just have to sort of accumulate good quality assets when, 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 when they're cheap and, you know, just be patient until the value is realized. But when that is, you know, I'm not quite sure. I guess the point is that eventually, eventually asset prices get cheap enough that perhaps we're jumping ahead a bit, but asset prices get cheap enough that, you know, people just start to buy them. Right. Um, well, it's, it's, but it, again, it's sort of hard to know what's cheap and what's not in a, in a world that is driven so much by, um, uh, you know, by these political factors. I'd like to ask you a little bit about your views on inflation. The Austrian school economists, of course, define inflation in terms of the money supply, and if it is growing, they say we have inflation. If it's shrinking, they say we have deflation. Well, how do you define inflation? <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> and... Uh, do you see an inflationary threat like some folks that we've had on the show, uh, John Williams, for example, James Turk, or do you see deflation as a bigger threat? We've had Robert Prechter on this show. Uh, what are your thoughts on the great inflation-deflation debate? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because that's obviously one of the most fundamental topics, and yet uh, to me it's, not, it's, it's certainly not 100% clear either way. I 
tend to think that we are, I tend to lean much more towards the inflation uh, side. And certainly that seems to be where we're going at the moment. Um, now, let's just back up a second. I mean, um, you know, the money supply, as you know, um, as, as your listeners know, I'm sure, has just absolutely exploded in the last, um, you know, couple of years. If you go back to the middle of 2008, so what's that, three years, you know, the money supply in the United States has, has what, tripled? No, doubled, I mean, since then. Yes. Um, and what, what we've seen, um, trying to look at the numbers here, what we saw at the end of 2008, of course, was a huge jump in the money supply. Um, you and I might think that was the wrong thing to do, but at least we understood what the reason was. It was very mm -hmm. clear why the Fed was increasing the money supply. But sure. They did. Mm -hmm. Now, I often like to say to my friends, you know what? If we'd have had a worse recession at the end of 2008, does anybody really think it wouldn't be over by now? Right. Um, if asset prices have been allowed to drop. Um, Housing prices. Yeah, housing in particular. I mean, the policy is completely backwards. Trying to prop up housing prices is simply is simply ensuring that the downturn prolongs much longer than it otherwise would. So then you saw for 2009 and most of 2010, you saw the money supply basically flat. It jumped up. It didn't really retreat much, but it was flat. Then at the beginning of this year, it jumped again. In the first three months of the year, it was up over 27%. And you have to ask why that was, because that wasn't so sort of obvious as 2008. And the basic reason that the money supply is going up so much, it seems to me, is because the Federal Reserve is buying U.S. Treasuries. So it's printing money in order to buy Treasuries. I, uh, I believe, or the last number I looked at, was that the Federal Reserve had bought just over 70% of all, of all Treasuries issued this year. Wow. That is really astonishing when you think it about it. And you see, this goes back to the fundamental, the fundamental problem with this monetary system. Mm -hmm. And people have suddenly woken up to it. And I mean, just think about it for a second. You've got one arm of the government, the Fed. Now, I know the Fed is ostensibly a private organization, and I know it's run for the benefit of private banks, but it's basically mm -hmm. an arm of the government, mm -hmm. or it could be viewed that way. One arm sure. of the government creating money to buy debt but it's issued by another arm of the government. Um, isn't it, you don't have to be an academic economist to realize that there's something screwy about this. In fact, it well, probably helps if you're not an academic. Yeah, I was going to say. I was going to say the biggest disadvantage in understanding markets a lot of time is is to have a PhD in economics behind it. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, just use <clears throat> common sense, mm -hmm. and you can see that there's something that just doesn't quite add up about this. Um, anyway. To get back to the inflation point, so so you've had money money up at 27% this year, and then you look at the inflation numbers. Now let's just look at the CPI. Let's just look at the CPI for what it is. You know, we all know that it doesn't reflect uh, you know prices, consumer prices, uh, uh, very well. Mm -hmm. And the numbers are not important to me at this point. What's important is the trend. Mm -hmm. You go back a year ago. And the 12-month CPI was up 1.1%. Six months ago, it was up 1. Point, well, beginning of this year, it was up 1.6%. Now it's up 3.6%. That's fairly astonishing acceleration. Isn't sure, it? sure. Um, and so it strikes me that we're beginning to see that inflation in the market. And Bernanke's got a bit of a problem right now because he thinks that the biggest problem is deflation and mm -hmm. 
more importantly, I, I'm not going to argue with him on that, but I will argue with him when he says that, you know, or, or, or alludes to the fact that the Fed can stop inflation any time they want. Mm-hmm. You know, so don't worry about inflation. You know, we can <laughs> cut that off. Mm-hmm. I think the risk is that inflation starts to get out of control. Yeah. Well, we we saw at a time when things weren't nearly as out of control as they are now debt-wise and when the U.S. was a net exporter still, uh, when Paul Volcker came in and, and raised interest rates, how painful that was, and uh, which is one reason I know, and I, I <clears throat> broached this topic years ago with Ron Paul and Mark Faber at a gathering in San Francisco, uh, whether we could see another Paul Volcker, and this was a few years back before we had gotten to anything like the debt-to-GDP ratios we have now, and neither of those gentlemen thought it was you know, at all politically possible to do that. I'm, I'm, I'm gathering you would probably agree with them. I would tend to go along with that. I mean, things would have to get a lot, lot worse before people would be willing to accept that. But, but the danger I see on a much, much bigger – no, I agree with that. The danger I see on a much bigger, bigger scale is that things get bad enough that uh, people are willing to accept some kind of, um, uh, you know, some kind of dictatorial, dictatorial system. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're, we're already far more of a dictatorial government today than we were when I first came to this country 30 years ago. Well, there's no question about that. No. No, no. No question about that. Adrian, we're going to have to take a break now. Uh, we have to go to commercial break when we come back. I want to ask you um, about commodities and, and where you think people can make money uh, in the equity markets and in the commodity markets. So, uh, folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back with Adrian Day. Mm-hmm. 